Our scripture reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself in Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Morning, church. It is exciting to be here. It's always, always a blessing because Village Bible Church has a special place in my heart, and I know it does in Maryland's heart as well. As we served there last summer, we were very blessed to be part of your community. The love we have seen, the level of health that we see, spiritually speaking, with the church really touched our heart and blessed us. And today, we, I get to share on the topic of the nine marks of a healthy church. Go figure that out. I'm already blessed by how healthy this church has been, the way it has been to us, and now I'm sharing on the same topic. Except I get to pick the hardest one of all the nine marks that all preachers will have to preach on. I'm kind of kidding, but I'm actually scared and dread that topic. It's evangelism. Let us bow in the word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy upon me. Thank you for this church that you have placed in this community to serve you. And now, I pray that as we open up the word of God today, that you would speak through me, that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and help us grasp your word, take hold of it, and also Fire us up, Lord, to apply it. Empower us to empower it. As we know, the flesh will not give us a chance. The world will not give us a chance to obey you if we do not walk in the Spirit. So I thank you again. And I pray for attentive ears. And I pray that I would be attentive to what you are saying to your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, the scripture reading today is not exactly what I'm speaking on, but it does. It does, touch, it does touch on the fact that we are servants. We are stewards of God, as Paul mentioned in the reading. And I would like to read, as we said on evangelism, I'd like to read the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew for you because this is what we're going to unpack for our sermon. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read from verses 16 through 20. Then... The eleven disciples went to Galilee, 
to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As I mentioned earlier, evangelism, when I think of evangelism, the way I want to spell it is a four-letter word, F-E-A-R, fear. (laughs) When I think evangelism, something in my heart gets nervous. I get the butterfly in my stomach. Why? It is scary to go out there, engage a total stranger, or even if they're not a stranger, even if they're your friends, and tell them about Christ. Invite them to repent and receive Christ. That's evangelism, right? Initiate people towards Christ. That is scary. A few years ago, a friend of mine when I was in college invited me to a performance she was giving at a, it's kind of like a, it's not a bar, a coffee shop. They were raising money for prisoners. So I went there, and my goal was just to support my friend. So here I am, I'm sitting down there, and my friend was performing right there, and two other friends from school were with us at the same table, and there is this lady out of nowhere. She was maybe in her 50s or so, she was sitting right at our table. And you know some people, they cannot keep their mouth shut, even when something important is happening. And she was that kind, unfortunately, for me. Because I was there just to be with my friend. And the lady started talking. Hey, I, have you ever heard of priest so-and-so? And I figured out, oh, she's Catholic. Okay. She said, he's such a good preacher. You need to listen to him. And here's his website. She gave me, she produced a card and she gave it to me. I'm like, yeah, 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 thank you. I'm trying to dismiss her because I am focused. I'm trying to listen to my friend. And, oh, no, she's not done. She has another topic to bring up. And she said, my family persecutes me because I try to get my nephews and nieces to go to church. They hit me. They crucify me. I'm like, oh, no wonder. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking, you know. And something started getting hold of my heart. I'm realizing, wait a minute. This lady is trying to share her faith with me. And I, as a Christian, what am I doing? I'm so focused in my world. Instead of listening in and even share who I believe God is to her, I'm trying to dismiss her. But anyway, the story goes on. The lady keeps you know, bringing topics after topics. And my friends were at the table start getting uncomfortable at times because they heard her mention a few things that sounded a little bit unorthodox. And these were moody students. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're always, their ears are perked up to listen to wrong theology and point it out. And that's, that lady started talking about uh, how salvation works out and all this thing. And I asked her a question. I said, okay, I don't know why. I just, at this point, I'm acting out of anger because... I'm so disturbed, I might as well make good use of it. I said, okay, now, let me ask you a question. If you died, if you were to die tonight, 
if you were to die tonight, God said, end of your life right now, and you stand in front of Christ, and he asks you, why in the world should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And then he started scrambling. He said, well, I said, Lord, you know I've tried. I did my best. I went through this. I went through that. I'm like, oh. So I started listening in, and I realized, ah, oh, she is thinking of what she has done. Okay. And I said, so how do you know then that what you've done is good enough to make it to heaven? Second question. She's like, oh, and she, she didn't know what to say. And then now I got a good moment of silence, which I really needed. But <laughs> beside the point, people at times, they do not know uh, what salvation actually means. They have ideas. They think they know, you know, who God is. They think they know how to make it to heaven, but they do not. And I figured it out just by asking just a couple of questions. And my friend was pulling my pants underneath the table like, don't do that. That's kind of weird. You're provoking the lady. I'm like, no, nope, I'm already out of my, you know, my comfort zone at this point already. I might as well do it. But I look back. Why did I not initiate such conversation? I was so scared to even engage anybody. That lady came to me, and I had the opportunity to share with her. But I didn't get it. Why is it that evangelism brings me fear, anxiety? Maybe it should bring me anxiety. Maybe it should bring us some level of nervousness that we may take the task for what it is. It is a difficult task. But is it true that we have to act? It is, is it mandatory for us to act in fear? I don't know if you've seen dogs when they go astray and they're lost in the wrong neighborhood. You see how they act? They put their tails underneath their belly because the bulldogs who own the turf you know, are barking loud, ferociously and voraciously to tear them off. They act, they're scared. Why is it that we Christians, in a world that is very vocal, in a world that is very adamant about pushing its values on us, how do we act? In cowardice, like dogs lost in the wrong neighborhood. But must we? Is it, is it possible that God has excitement for us? Do we have reason to be pumped up, to be excited? about sharing the gospel, about sharing our faith. Well, if you read this text, if you listen to the text we just read, what does it sound like to you? We call it the Great Commission. I'd rather call it the Great Pep Talk, in a sense. Does it not sound like a coach to you? Getting his team pumped up? Getting his team fired up? Because he's about to give them a task? That's what it sounds like. Let's look at this. Jesus died. He's gone. Disciples are disturbed. They're unsettled. They don't know what to do. But he rose again. He met the ladies, and the ladies went and told the disciples, and Jesus gave them an appointment on the mountain in Galilee. And we pick up the story in verse 16. They went to the mountain where Jesus tell them to meet him. And now for the first time, they have seen the resurrected Christ. I can't imagine what it must have looked like to them, but something glorious must have happened there. You see how some of them responded properly. When you see 
you know, the glory of God, you respond in how? In worship. They bow down their knees and they worship them. But as human as we are, it makes sense. Some of them were hesitant. They doubted, as the passage says. But look how Jesus now speaks to them. He approached them and he said, All authority, this is verse 18, have been given on earth. I mean, on earth and in heaven has been given to me. This is how Jesus started his talk. So if we are to answer the question today, is it possible that we can be excited about evangelism? I'll start by this. Actually, it's three reasons. We can be excited. You and I can be excited about evangelism today because of three reasons. First, because of our position. Second, because of the nature of the execution of the task. And third, because of our companion. Position, execution, companion. Our position, our execution, and companion. Our position. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Look at the text. It sounds like, okay, is Matthew telling me that before Jesus died and resurrected, he had no authority and no power? Now let's do a little bit of, uh, of homework. If you read the whole Gospel of Matthew, do you not remember that when Jesus started healing people, calming the sea, and do certain miracles, what did the people conclude about Jesus? Ah, what kind of teaching is this? One with authority. So Jesus is known to already have authority. So Matthew, when he said, when he reported Jesus as saying, all authority have been given in honor, on heaven and on earth have been given to me, he's not talking about new authority. He's talking about a vindication of that authority. That now Jesus is using that authority as a basis for a command he's going to give. So we said what? We said you and I can be excited about evangelism because of our position. Now look who is about to command the disciple and therefore us. He said I have all authority in heaven and on earth and therefore I'm sending you. So, what does that say? What does that say? That said that the position of Christ, the position of all authority, is vested into the disciples who are to carry out the mission. And therefore, that authority is also invested into whom? Into us today. You wonder what, what does that mean, authority? Well, think, think about authority that way. Somebody put it this way, and I really love it. It said, you, you actually understand authority. Think of a police officer. Here he is in the street, just a man. Of course, he has a weapon. But look at him standing in the middle of the road and directing traffic. Any car, any vehicle who decide to crush him, they could. But that man, when he's standing there, he has the authority to do what? To stop a vehicle, to let one continue, to tell them which turn. And he has the authority to stop a vehicle and question their driving and assign punishment. But is it really that man or that woman officer that has that much authority in themselves? No. Why do you and I obey him? Not because he's big, because some of us are bigger than they are at times. Not me, obviously. But... We obey because when that officer stands right there, he's standing with what? 
the authority of the United States of America is behind him. That means you disobey him, you might get an extra penalty added to your thing. You hurt him, extra penalty added to your case. You see? So the more you disobey him, the more in trouble you get because he's not standing on behalf of himself. See that? He's not standing because, okay, I just love controlling people, so I'm going to stand out there and just tell people what to do. No. No. So what is happening here that you and I, when it comes to evangelism, we cower. We do not act according to who we are. Who are we? We are servants of Christ. Huh? Vested in with the authority of Christ. And yet, we live as though we are called to fit in into our culture. We cower into our little islands, and we are not contagious Christians. So, reason to be excited, number one, is because of our position. We, are, we have a position where we are in Christ. One was all authority. Where did I get the word all authority? It says that here, but even more importantly, look at how Matthew put it. He says, in heaven and on earth. That's a figure of speech. We call it merism. You know what merism is? Merism, you use two extreme to express totality. It says in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? That means everything. Jesus has authority not in the domain of man only. He has authority in the domain of the spiritual things. That means both among things visible, both among things invisible, Jesus exerts authority. So supreme authority of Christ is vested in us. So this is enough reason to understand that the command is not a command that should bring dread and fear as it does to me and you today. So Jesus continues. He says, after he says, all authority has been given to me, then I like that next word. It says in verse 19, therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, it's drawing some logical conclusion or some normal consequence, a follow-up action. So what do you see here? So based on my authority, now, here's what I'm commanding you to do. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. To obey everything that I have commanded you. So here we got. You and I can be excited today about evangelism because of the nature of its execution. The nature of how you and I implement evangelism calls for us to be excited. Why am I saying this? I used to think, and many of us do that, we commit that mistake, oh, evangelism means I just go out there, take my bullhorn, and start yelling out in the street. Of course, that's also a method. I would not discard that. I've seen a couple of, uh, uh, I think they might be Korean, in the city of Chicago recently as I was going to work. They were announcing the gospel with their bullhorn. And I'm telling you, I do not see it, but I know some people are hearing. And the gospel is preached, so I'm not going to disagree with that. But a lot of time we think of evangelism as just that. 
No, the nature of the task of evangelism is so much more organic than that. Let's look at a few items here. The Great Commission is one command. It's not a bunch of commands. It's only one. Which one is it? It's the command to make disciples. It is the command to make disciples. Now, where in the world did I get that? Because when you look at your text here in the NIV, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. That means you have two commands here, to go and to make disciples. Of course, I'm not going to try to draw too much grammatical. uh, I don't want to beat over the grammar. But in the original language, the command is actually one. Make disciples is the only command. The other verbs, go, baptizing, teaching, they're all helping verbs. You know, I mean, they're they're coming in different forms. They're just helping that command. So, go is cannot be separated with the command make disciples. It's attendant circumstance to that. So, go and make disciples. Some of us sometimes, we make too much of the part go. We say, oh, we got to go on missions. Yes. Many of us are called to go on missions. Travis is in India. Some people will be going to Uganda. Some of you will be going to other trips away from the city of Aurora. That's great. But think about this logically. If all of us are actually called to move away from our country and go serve on missions, what would happen? Some countries would have been swapped already. The population of Chicago is already the size of the population of Haiti. So that means if every Christian in America would actually say, hey, let's go to one country like Haiti, for instance, there would be no more Haitians in Haiti, or, or Haiti would be all American. So the swapping would have happened already at some point in history to some places. So the command to go sometimes is made too much of, and sometimes it's made too little. Too somebody said, oh, I'm just going to, as I live in my little turf, that's where I'm going to evangelize, which is also true. But you cannot make too little of it. So I think somewhere in the balance between, of, okay, God called you to mission, do it. Go. And God doesn't call you overseas. Where you live, where you work, you know, wherever you frequent is your mission field. Until the Lord said the next step is to do what? Does that make sense? So I do not want to make too much of that grammar here. But the command is one single command to make disciples. So this is actually the linchpin of the whole Great Commission, of that whole pep talk, of that whole charge that Jesus gives. The Great Commission says, he entails a few of these. First of all, it entails evangelism as a walk. It entails evangelism as a walk. When he says, go and make disciples, so as you live, as you move about, if you, you are to move away, but if you're not, as you live, you should live uh, in making disciples. That means it's not, oh, when I'm in America, I do not make disciples because that's my home. And when I'm going to Uganda, then I'm going to make disciples. No, it is a walk. It is not just a trip. It is not just an event. Here's what I mean by this. I worked with missionaries in Haiti for about a year or so. Something always strikes me as extraordinary about them. I don't care how old they are, whether they're middle-aged or young. They all have the same attitude. They're ready to serve. They, have, they do not take obst- obstacles uh, as uh, the final word on anything. They're ready to move to their tasks. 
their tasks, they're flexible, they're wise, they're godly. And I said, wow, I can't believe how godly and strong and mature American Christians are. And little did I know. There is, I would have a, you would have a nurse, for instance, really young nurse, fresh out of college, 22 years old, and she would come to Haiti to minister to people, and then you tell her, pick up the garbage. She would do it with such a great attitude. It made me wonder, can that be real? Can that person be real? And then I came to America, and I know that person again, and I realized she totally switched her hat. Now she's in America. Now she's acting spoiled. She's acting entitled. She's acting all this. Why? Because now she's not on a mission anymore. This is not the call for mission. Evangelism is a walk. We should not take off our hat when we are not in an overseas mission field. So evangelism is something we walk in daily. We walk in anywhere, anytime. How did I know God would have given me an appointment with that lady at that coffee shop? I did not. And to my blame, I was not ready for it. I did not prepare my heart for it or myself. I was counting the lady as a hindrance, as an obstacle to my life because my life is more important than evangelism. See, I have business to do here. I have people to support here. Can't tell me to try to speak to that person. But God had an appointment for me. You know what happened that day? After the lady kept talking, kept talking, kept talking, after uh, she keeps talking about everything, oh, no, we know stories about the family and everything, she, but I asked these questions and I didn't answer them for her because she was not ready to hear the good news. I had to announce the bad news first. So I started, I, I just pressed and pressed, and, which made my moody friends very uncomfortable, and then I left her right there. And then she didn't say anything. She moves on and talked about everything. And then the performance was over, and we left. And my friend had a guitar, so I grabbed the guitar for her as I'm leaving the door. I met right outside of that doorway. The lady came dashing for us. She ran toward the doorway, and as we get outside, she said, wait, wait. I said, what? She said, you were right. I was trying to make it to heaven with my good deeds. Ah, I could not believe it. I did not tell her that. I think the Holy Spirit told her that. There's no way I could convince that lady that she's not saved because she goes to church. I could not convince her that she's not saved because she's doing all these great things for people or trying to get her nephews to church. She's not saved because she's persecuted either. Huh? Some of us, because we are persecuted, say, hey, I'm a good Christian because people hate me. True, Jesus did say that. People will hate you. But that's not what makes you, you know? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, look at that. The work of evangelism is a walk. You should never lose your hat. You should always have it on. But it's also a spiritual work. You cannot accomplish it with your own strength. You cannot. It is spiritual work. So God has to do it. And he's doing it through you. But let's not drop the hat. Oh, so let, let me wait until I go to Africa. And then I'm going to be good. I'm going to act virtuously. I'm going to be flexible. I'm going to be... And then when you're in America, let me act spoiled again. No. No. In your own household, you're on mission. You're on mission. You know, right outside of your door, you're on mission. Who knows what encounter God's going to bring you? I was not ready that day, but God, you know, had mercy on me because my attitude really stunk <laughs> that day. But God is on the mission. He never loses sight of it. Jesus never lost sight of his mission. He was 
a young boy, and he was in the temple. He said, did you know that I got to care about my father's business? See? So we have to always have this in the back of our mind, that cassette they're playing. We are on a mission. We are on a mission. We are here representing our God, our Father, to a lost and dying world. So evangelism is a walk. That's the nature of the task. This should make you and I pumped up about doing evangelism. It is a walk that means I don't have to sweat it. I don't have to say, okay, when am I going to evangelize somebody tomorrow or this week? Of course you can plan an encounter. Great. But think about it as your life. And it will be less stressful. Because you don't wake up and say, oh, okay, uh, oh, this week I work. Oh, let me think about the work. No, you just do it. That's part of your life. You just move on and do that. This week I go to school. No, you just do that. You don't say, oh, let me plan and go to school this week. And then that means, and then after that I'm going to start living. No, you live through all these tasks that are part of your life. So let's live evangelism as a walk, and the stress might be way lower, and the excitement of being instruments of God may set in. And also, evangelism, as we talk about the nature of the execution of that task, is an all-inclusive call. It is an all-inclusive call. What do we mean by that? Look at the word Jesus put in verse 19. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That word for nation here, Matthew loves using it. And when he uses it, it tends to mean the Gentiles, those who do not know Christ. Those who do not share the same God as the Jews. But here, unlike when, you remember the mission trip Jesus sent the disciples earlier in the book? I know you didn't get to read it, but let me tell you. <laughs> he sent them out. He said, do not go, go to the lost ship of Israel. Do not go to the ethne, to the nations. And here he said, go and make disciples of what? Of all nations. Something new is happening. You see that? Jesus is including in the mission field, not just the Jews, not just God's people for whom he came. Who? The whole world. So the call to missions is a call that includes everyone. But I don't think the world understands that. Let me tell you what. I worked uh, for a supervisor at a catering company uh, recently. And we were working a wedding. And that wedding was a Christian wedding. It was done at the Moody Church. They had at the History Museum. They just had the reception there. And the father of the bride gave a speech where he highlighted the fact that his daughter and her and fiancé remained pure until the wedding day. And the word pure that he used really offended my supervisor. He said, Christians think they're better than everybody else. He said, he said pure. What does that say about the other ones who don't act like your daughter? That means they're impure? And then I didn't know he thought that way. And then as we were putting some stuff away... I ended up talking about uh, purity. Oh, I made this sinful. You know, I, I committed the unpardonable sin. I used the word pure. I said, and then he said, you see? You see? You Christians, you, you, you take yourself like as better than everybody. I said, I said what do you mean? How do you, what do you mean? And I'm looking out, and I'm, I can see an evangelistic moment right there. And he said, you, you see, you use the same word that the father of the bride used. I said, he, he, he used it too. What did he mean by that? He said, pure. That means his daughter is better than everybody else. 
And I said, ah, I said, you know what? You are right. She is not better than anybody else who live promiscuously or do whatever they want with their bodies in the name of their freedom. You are right because we Christians do certain things or morally that we decide is morally better does not make us any better. You are right. However, you cannot tell me two things. I know this made two mistakes. I said, first of all, you cannot tell me that there's no, not even some immediate benefit into practicing restriction. I said, that girl has less to worry about. And so does her husband. So that's some immediate benefit. And he has, oh, yeah, are you talking about STDs and stuff? I said, yeah, that's that. Not, we're not even going to the moral right or the spiritual right. I'm just going to stay right there. I said, second of all, when you call Christian judgmental, you are yourself being judgmental right then. Because you have to judge me as judgmental to actually say that. So you have to admit that you're a judgmental person as well. So that argument is self-defeating. You can't call Christians out because you said nobody should call anybody out on whatever they do while you're calling them out on exactly what they're doing. I said, so you have to admit there is a right and there is a wrong. You have to say I'm doing something wrong by, judge, by saying purity is good. You have to say that. So where do you get that? I said, you must admit there is a right and a wrong, and you believe in it, and you're using your right to, do, to correct my wrong. So that brings us back to square one. So if there is such a thing as truth, there is such a thing as purity, or as benefits spiritually, or whatever it is that we may not know, then Christians are doing well by promoting it. So, but the end of the story is this. We tend to cower thinking the world you know, is, is promoting something called tolerance and they're doing it right. They're not really promoting tolerance. It's false tolerance because they're not tolerating us. <laughs> you see what I mean? So, so be ready. When, they, when somebody argues, like be kind and agree with them because the truth is Jesus did not come to, to actually make us better people. You know what I mean? To improve on our morality. Jesus did not come for that. Jesus came to make the dead live. We were dead in our sins. So that's what we need to help him understand. Because he understood that Christians are promoting better morality. No, that's not what the Christian message is. It is not. Think about this. Sin is slavery. Jesus came to make the slave free. When the world says they are free, they're not really free. They're actually applying their slavery. They just want to give free reign to their slavery, to their chains. They cannot help. You know it because you are, you are not born saved yourself. You know, and still now, the flesh is still waging war against you. So you know how sin works. Sin takes control. It does not let go. You don't actually do what you want to do. Paul says that. So the message is that do not preach, you know, moralism and evangelism. No. Let them know it's a call for everyone. It's an all-inclusive call. Nobody is good but God. Nobody is better than you. You know, you use your word purity. I said that's a good language we have. But let them, let them know that in terms of absolute, they are right. Nobody is good. Nobody is better than they are. Because we, by God's standard, everyone is lost. And that's when the message comes in. This is the good news. Even you, I mean, you and me can be included in that same message because we're all on the same, you know, plane in front of God. And that was the key I was trying to hit with that gentleman because he's very, very familiar 
with the Christian message. Because I heard him earlier correcting other students about drinking wine and saying how Jesus, you know, how the Bible speaks. So he knows the Christian message, at least a distorted version of it. So they're familiar with it, and our job is to help them know that the call is for everyone, and nobody's better. That's why everyone is called. I may act more morally, but that doesn't make me a better person. And yet, the world, that's how they label us. You know, they misrepresent our message, and they want us to accept the label and move on. No, let's be, let's, let's understand the nature of the call. It's an all-inclusive call. That means everyone is called to that, all nations, all kind of uh, person. Now, third, about the nature of the execution, it is an initiation to the person of Christ. It is introducing them to the person of Christ. That's what you do when you evangelize. So that part has to be included because that's the part that includes baptism. It says baptizing them. How do you do evangelism? You make disciples. How do you make disciples? By baptizing them. That's the first method of the making disciples. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot going on there theologically in that text. But real briefly, I want to mention that when you baptize someone, baptism was done in the time of Jesus for what? To help people renew or reestablish a relationship with God because water was used as a sign of purification and rituals, correct? And now Jesus take that ritual and make it now as a sign of initiation for everybody who wants to endorse you know, the person and work of Christ. So baptism, you cannot tell somebody, oh, some people said, you know what? Uh, me and God, we got something good going on here. I don't want the church. I don't need the church. I don't want to go to church. I don't need to go to church. No, that's true. Church doesn't save you. But if you are not initiated you know, into the body of Christ, how can you call yourself somebody who's actually following Christ? Well, he says you need to be baptized as a sign of introduction. Baptism does not save somebody. There's nothing mystical about pronouncing the name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. But it's a an outward manifestation of who under which or whose authority you come in. In the name of Jesus, that means you are under now, you know, the person is baptized under the authority of Jesus. They come under the authority of the God the Father, and they come under the leadership and the inward habitation of the Holy Spirit. So the triune God is the name under whom somebody comes in when they are initiated to Christ. So, and lastly, evangelism entails instruction into the message of Christ. Look what Jesus says here. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit, in verse 20. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, this is the part that excites me. Evangelism doesn't stop by introducing somebody to who Jesus is. Telling them, oh, repent and turn away from your sins and turn to God and put your faith in Jesus and you'll be saved. No, evangelism is actually making students out of people. Students of God, students of Christ, by teaching them the message of Jesus. So, teaching somebody the Bible, raising them in the way of God, is a lifelong process. It doesn't stop after you introduce the message. It's all that Jesus commanded, all that the message of Christ is about. That's what you and I, we need to preach. Now, 
I love this. Look what, how Jesus crowns and finishes his talk to the disciples. He says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, I'm sending you. And then he ends with this. It says, behold. That word behold is a focus word. Focus uh, word, it kind of brings emphasis. It says, uh, that's the King James, I think that says behold. He says, surely, I love that better. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always until the end of history, until the end of time that we live in now. Now, how did Matthew start his gospel? You remember in chapter 1, the angel? His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And how does Matthew end it again? Jesus will be with us. Obviously, it's not God the Father, but Jesus, when Jesus, and God is with us, when Jesus is with us, God is with us. So, you see, Matthew book ends this book with, basically, in this book, I mean, he, he surrounds it with that same theme, that God, the presence of God is with us. Now, do you know any coach, after they get their team fired up, and then they take off their blazers and join them? I don't know. I don't think that's allowed, Right? But here is Jesus, a man with all authority, and now he's promising not just omnipotence, he's also promising omnipresence, his presence forever. He encourages the disciples, and now he says, I'm not going to leave you alone, I'm with you in this. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Million Dollar Arm, it's kind of a nice movie because it's based on a true story, where there's, there's this a recruiter who went to India to recruit baseball players. And, you know, in, this, in that country, if I'm correct, they play cricket. That's a similar thing to baseball, but it's not baseball, and that's not what they play. So it was hard to find a few kids who could actually make it to a major league in the U.S. But long story short, they found a coach down there in, in India who wanted to coach baseball, but he didn't know much about baseball, obviously. And they brought him into the U.S. with the kids they were training, and he was watching and learning, taking notes. And the day, the D-Day, the big day, where the kids are supposed now to try out for some teams, and the coach, the actual coach tells the Indian coach, who wanted to, wanted, wanted to be coach, he said, go ahead and fire them up. I love that line. He says, go fire them up. So the guy went. Now, his job is to fire the kids up so they can be excited about what they do and then pitch perfectly as they could. And that was nice. He gave them a nice speech. But one thing he did not do, after he gave them the speech, called them brothers. I cried for that moment. I'm telling you this. You know, that was not a chick flick moment, chick flick moment. But I cried. And, <laughs> and I really felt, I, I was watching the TV. I felt fired up myself, you know. The guy identified with the teammates, I mean, with the two Indian boys about to play. Because he's Indian himself, and he said, you guys are living the dream that I cannot dream. I cannot live myself. But he did not do one thing. He did not take off his blazer and join them. He did not. But Christ, Christ is with us. So when we take on our mission seriously to introduce people to Jesus, we must not forget we are not doing the job alone. We must not. 
We must not go to do the job alone. So you and I must be excited about evangelism because of our companion. This summer, I started a, a group called a Meetup. You know what a Meetup is? It's almost like a Facebook, except it's about meeting people for real. It's not, it's not about communicating messages. You use the website, and you pay a fee, and then they help you build a group. They announce it for you, and then you actually meet these people for common interest. So I called it the Post-Christian Squared of Aurora. We thought we were going to move down here, so I put it here, and I met at the Starbucks over there. Then I called it a forum for honest intellectuals, people who actually want to wrestle with truth and have good discussion with Christians. So I wanted Christians to come, and I wanted unbelievers or atheists or agnostics to come and say, here's what we think about you Christians. What do you have to say? So I'm just trying to use that as a forum to, to do evangelism. And then the first day, five or six people came. I don't remember exactly. And then I was sitting, I was hoping some Christians would have come, but no, nobody came. And on the table, out of all of us sitting at the table, the only person who did not have a Christian background, like he wasn't born in a Christian family, was me. Can you believe that? I'm sitting with five or six atheists, or claimed atheists. They all were raised in the church. They all were. So they, here I am, and some of them are really smart. There was that German guy among them. It was scary. But he, he came, and he came ready to fire great questions. And then the first question he asked me, he said, are you all-knowing? I said, oh, no. Why, why would I pretend that? And then he said, can you make mistakes? Oh, yeah. He said, if you find tangible irrefutable evidence that shows that what you believe is wrong. Will you switch? I said, oh, yeah, I will. I would. And then he said, okay. And then he feels this one. He's like, okay, he's not a Christian. <laughs> he's like, I'm like, what do you mean? He said, you're the only Christian I know who would say that. I said, well, I'm very confident in my faith because I believe the truth withstands this test. If I said I believe the truth, I shouldn't be scared of you testing me. So I'm here for you to test. Then I said, how about you now? I said, are you all-knowing? He said, no. And then within five minutes of the discussion, his wife was there too. They both said, you know what? We're not true atheists. He said, because we look at the Christians, I think they're right about the afterlife. There must be something. I'm like, okay, I didn't say that. You know, you're saying it yourself. But So that, that's kind of how the world assumes you don't. You don't know how to defend your faith. And to be honest with you, I don't have to defend my faith. Like per se, I let God do it by just me asking them questions and just answering honestly. And I was honest with them, and they didn't know what to do with me because they were hoping I said, no, I can't be wrong. You are wrong. No, that's not my point. I'm just a human. I said, but I believe God takes care of his business. I said, now, this is who I am. I believe that God is almighty, that God is omniscient, that he knows everything, and he can do everything. So if I actually believe that, why should I be scared of you trying to make me change my mind? Well, I believe God is on the business reaching out. So my job here today is just tell you what I believe, and you do whatever you want with it, because actually I don't trust in myself. I trust in the one who actually has the message. I told them that point blank. And... You can argue with somebody's argument, per se, the way they craft it, but you can argue with when they say, this is what I believe. 
Because the world tells us what their opinions are, don't they? But we're scared of telling them our opinion. No, I'm not going to be scared of telling you my opinion. I just told you. But now it disarms them. But this is what I'm, I want to share with this, actually, going with the story. It's not so much to show how and how good I am at evangelism. Actually, I stink at it. Uh, actually, the moments of evangelism that I've had, God has given them to me. I didn't really make them. That website I created is because I saw some of my friends left the faith, and they were actively pursuing other people to make them leave the faith too. And I was provoked, and I created the group and called it almost the same name as their group. And that's why I have so many atheists coming, because they thought that was a Christian bashing group. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why they came. And then, little to say, a few weeks later, some of them started to dwindle. But one meeting I went, I went and I said, and I'm supposed to meet with them. I'm leaving my wife behind and my daughter. I'm going to meet at the Starbucks with these people. And nobody showed up. And there is a guy who's always there early. So I texted David when I said, David, it's bad weather today. There's no point of me coming here, braving the weather and the drive, and there's nobody. I said, would you pray? So he said, yeah, I'll be praying. And then the guy who never comes late, he never comes late, he showed up. I said, praise God. And then, and I started asking him questions again. How do you feel about the group? How are things going? And the guy shared with me how he feels so disowned by his Christian family. That's why he finds no reason for the Christian faith. So it, it goes much more about their hurt than actually what is truth. So God at the heart of it. But here's the point I'm, sure I'm trying to get at. Evangelism is a spiritual endeavor. It is not. Even though outwardly, it looks like, okay, I'm just talking to people, I'm just speaking, I'm going out door to door if that's what you do, or I'm going on a mission trip. It is actually a spiritual work. How in the world do you expect to do spiritual work with human resources? So when I asked David for prayer, I do not think anybody was going to come if I went on my own. I think that day was a nice object, I mean, obstacle day. But I think the Lord brought the guy because he normally comes early before me. So I think God heard David's prayer and just sent him. So I think when we do evangelism, we should not forget that Jesus is with us and put the work, the load back onto Jesus' back. How? Pray. Whenever you're in a situation Somebody's in front of you and who does not know the Lord, you don't know how to speak to them, pray. Pray in your heart. Say, God, I do not know how to share my faith right now. And since Jesus is with you, since the Holy Spirit remains in you, I believe God will make a way. I believe God will take care of his business. If you line up with the harvest God is reaping in America today, you will see God make it bear fruit. Still now, I don't know what happens to these atheists that I met. They may never meet a Christian anymore. But I believe God is working in their hearts. He's doing his work. So I take the pressure off of me and put the pressure on God where he actually belongs. So evangelism shouldn't be an object of dread and fear. It should be of excitement. Why? Because our position in Christ, the position of one who has authority, why? Because of the execution of the task. The task is a lifelong task. It's not a task to do and get it done, and then it's, you know, all the stress and so forth. No, it is not like that. And lastly, because of the companion that we have for that task. If one who has all authority and is ever-present is with us, what should we fear?
what should we fear? So a couple of applications for you. Uh, maybe the, this week you could pray that the Lord would bring you godly, I mean, God-ordained encounters with those who do not know him, that need to hear the gospel. And secondly, that God would use you to share Christ with them. And how do you share Christ? I learned from the book of Matthew again. Remember when Jesus went out to preach? He preached like John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When you preach the gospel, never forget to preach repentance. Somebody has to turn from their own ways and turn to God to actually meet and be saved by God. If you know faith in God, you reject Christ, then there is no evangelism happening if you don't invite the person to receive Christ. So pray about this and ask the Lord to bring encounters, and I believe the Lord will be faithful to bring real encounters of people who actually need to hear the gospel, and don't ever forget to invite them to repent and put their faith in Christ. It doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be with a bullhorn. Just simply say, hey, can you imagine your sin being forgiven? Can you imagine the thing under which you are a slave now can be lifted, can be taken off by God, and you'd be living free for him, and more importantly, you have him now and for eternity as your father where you actually belong and not living astray from him, that's the invitation. You know, make it clear to them. Make it simple. You, know, you don't have to make it judgmental as they think. Or if they call it judgmental, show them that they are being judgmental themselves and say, no, I'm, I just would like to, sh- I'm sharing what I believe. And, and they'll say, well, keep it for yourself. But they're not keeping this for themselves. Notice that because they are telling you not to. So that's... Uh, I think, a nice or a comprehensive way of making the gospel known to them. Just make it simple. Repent and turn to God and receive Christ. So that's how you would share when you get to speak. If you don't get to speak, ask God for encounters. And when you in an encounter, pray in your heart that the Holy Spirit would use you. Because with your own words, with your own devices, you will not be able to do God's work. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the word. Thank you for the call to evangelize. And thank you that we are not called to evangelize as a task, but as a way of living. And I pray that it would be an object of joy, of excitement, of the harvest that you are bringing in this world, that we are joining you in it, and that we may be pleased to do the will of our Father in heaven. I pray for those of us this week who will come at work in the workplace with someone who would come from them on something at times, or who do not know you. I pray that we not only use their words, but their confidence of who they are in Christ, Lord, would permeate and would help that person know who we are as your children. And more importantly, let us, when we make the invitation, Lord, let the Holy Spirit seal the deal. And even if we don't see it, Lord, let us be confident in you as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.